Let's read here just the first 11 verses here of 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look at a few points, uh, obviously, on the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting there in verse 1, Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. But what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. It was a great, very succinct passage of Scripture. We'll have a prayer here, and then we'll uh, look at a few points from it together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you just for this time of year even, uh, to have some time to slow down. Uh, and God, we do pray that, that we do have you know, taking advantage of that, that, that time off to really reflect on the true meaning of this time, God. To consider an event that, that changed the course of, of human history, God, 2,000 plus years ago, God. We pray that as we, we ponder and consider the resurrection and as we, you know, listen to, to what, you know, the Apostle Paul ha, has written the church in Corinth about, God, that you can help us, God. Help us to take home the true meaning of it, God. Help us to... to, to to really look at that time, to look at that period, to look at that event in history, God, and allow it to change us in the way it's intended to, God. May your spirit move among us, God, opening up the eyes of our hearts, God, helping us to see what we need to see and to walk away with what we need to walk away with, God. Again, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Also, it is, a, it is a very famous passage of Scripture. If you've you know, maybe ever read 1 Corinthians uh, it is significant, and, and even within the text itself, right, Verse, uh, you know, verses 3, 4, and 5, uh, a lot of historians consider that to be probably one of the earliest creedal or summary statements of the Christian faith. All right, so it is pretty, pretty significant here. You know, and there are three kind of basic concepts that are quite apparent that Paul makes here, right? Uh, as he talks about the resurrection, and the Corinth church does have some issues they're working through in regards to the resurrection, but Paul, you know, lays out some pretty clear things, right? He encourages them to stand on that belief, to stand firm on that belief. He's reassuring them of the certainty of what they have received. Uh, he challenges them by his example to not just receive that message, but to pass it on, to spread it, to take it to someone else. Uh, and third and lastly, he does urge them to uh, allow that grace to have effect, to embrace that grace of God that's contained in that message and allow it to change you. All right, so we'll look at those three things here fairly quickly. Uh, the, the charge to stand on it, to pass it, and to embrace it. Uh, first and foremost here, you know, he talks about standing on it. Uh, you know, and this is, this is a, you know, we, we see this in this text pretty clearly. 
uh, verses 1 to 2, you know, he reminds them of the gospel he's preached and on which they have taken their stand. Uh, and this is, you know, it's helpful sometimes to consider even who he's talking to. If you've studied a bit of, you know, Roman history uh, or, you know, or, or, you know, history of that time period, uh, Corinth was a pretty strategic place. It was a port city there in the Mediterranean. Uh, it was a, as most port cities are even to this day, it was uh, a place where there was a great convergence of ideas. There was a lot of religious thought, a lot of religious discussion, philosophical ideas. Uh, it was a central trading port uh, for, for, for North Africa and, and even all the way up to Spain uh, and obviously throughout the Mediterranean. So you can imagine kind of the, 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 vast, uh, the vastness of the ideas that would come through this city. Uh, and if you read the letter, to, to, you know, if you read the entire letter start to finish of 1 Corinthians, uh, you'll see it's, you know, there is some confusion going on even within the, 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 the church there. Uh, and part of that probably is coming from all these influences that were swirling around, all these ideas that were swirling around. And I think that's helpful for us to understand because sometimes we can, we can think our time and our period in history is unique. Like that the modern person is the first person to struggle with the concept of the resurrection or to have questions about that or push back on that. All right? the, the church in Corinth would have been faced with all those things. They would have had to wrestle with a lot of those concepts. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, the plural, plural, plurality of the ideas that were in their world. And Paul tries to help them by pointing out to them two evidences. And if you look a little closer there in verse, verses 3 through 8, it becomes pretty clear what, he, what, what he's talking about. You know, as he talks about uh, that message that's been passed down, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared. There's a repetitive phrases in there, all right? As he discusses those things two times, he talks about the reality that the, that the, the uh, idea, the doctrine, the, the proclamation uh, that, that Jesus was, was crucified for our sins and that he resurrected. Paul is saying that is according to the scriptures. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an oopsie on God's fault, you know, in God's, in God's mind. It was a preordained, pre-planned event. A pre-planned solution to a problem God knew would arise. That, that would arise. And, and, and you know, the New Testament cites lots of different passages that point to that. You don't have to turn there, but you know, Psalm 1610 is a, is a, is a famous one uh, where the psalmist writes about, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Early church, using the, the Jewish Bible, would point to that passage as, hey, here's an example. of Look, this was always the plan for the Messiah. Right? A lot of people looked, you know, in the, in the first century, looked to even the prophet Jonah, the minor prophet Jonah, and the idea that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a, of a whale or a fish. And hey, that's just like the Son of Man is going to spend three days in the belly of the earth, but he will rise again. But a vast majority of the scriptural Old Testament prophecies that point to the resurrection, to point, that point to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, come from the book of Isaiah. Right? Uh, have you ever read Isaiah? It's not a short one. I was reading it with uh, Ollie the other day, uh, and he was shocked at 66 chapters, right? Ollie's just starting to read the Bible, and, you know, Mark is a good one, 16 chapters to start with, right? But Isaiah has a lot in there, right? Uh, and there's some really famous ones that are there. You know, Isaiah 53 being one of the very famous ones, verses 10 to 11, where it talks about this suffering servant. And it says there that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. 
and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Anyone, even with a basic understanding of Christianity, can read a chapter like Isaiah 53, and if you ask them who it's about, they inevitably often say, Jesus. And for a long period of history, right, you know, thousands of years perhaps, a lot of people would say that the early church had changed the meaning of Isaiah. They had edited the text and changed it to make it fit Christian beliefs. Does that make sense? Right? But in the 1940s you know, and 50s, the legend says a little boy named Muhammad uh, was chucking rocks into a cave in the Middle East and heard something shatter. Uh, he goes in and, and you know, a young teenage kid makes probably one of the greatest archaeological discoveries uh, of the modern era, uh, and that is of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and as you know, archaeologists begin to dig through the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, one of the, the books or scrolls that was contained in that treasure trove is an entire copy of Isaiah. And the significance of that find is that the, 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 the writing, you know, testing the, the age of that scroll predates Jesus' birth by centuries. Centuries. And so when Paul here is trying to help the church in Corinth, you know, with all these swirling ideas bubbling around in their culture, that when he's trying to help them to stand firm on this message they had received, Paul knew, hey, this is not blind faith. This is not something you just need to accept without using your mind. And there is tremendous evidence. There's tremendous evidence that backs up the, 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 the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And the fact that God had planned it all ahead of time. You know, and beyond even that, I mean, there's so many, you know, manuscript evidences. I mean, there's no book in the history of the world that has more historical evidence for, for the correctness of it as the Bible. What most people accept as truth of Roman history is backed by 500 manuscripts. The, 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 the New Testament that you hold in your lap in, in paper print or digitally is backed up by over 20,000 manuscripts. And so you see as Paul here is trying to help this church to understand, hey, the truth that you've been given, man, this is according to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are something that you can take your stand on. And for them in a pluralistic society and for us, in a very relativistic, truth is subjective, uh, believe whatever you want to believe, you can have truth, I'll have truth, and none of those truths uh, agree with each other. In fact, they all contradict each other, but somehow that works. In that illogical mess in which we live, Paul appeals, I think, even to us. You want to find some sanity? We'll take a stand on the Scriptures. Because everything God has done has been done according to the Scriptures. Now the second bit of evidence that Paul provides here. Is, is the reality that this resurrected Jesus, he appeared to a lot of people. And he appeared to the 12, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to the 500, right? he appeared to, to a lot of different people uh, over a period of about 40 days. Right? And the cool thing for Paul, right? again, a lot of people think uh, that the Bible is like the telephone game. You ever played the telephone game? We had a leadership retreat last week and we played the, the telephone game where... One person on one end gets a, gets a, uh, a message, and we did it Pictionary style, so uh, it was Cameron, my nephew, was on one end, and I was on the other, so it was destined to fail. 
Uh, and I think the picture that Cameron was given was that of Donald Trump. And so Cameron drew a stick figure with, you know, the kind of like the floppy Trump hair uh, and an American flag in the background, which that should have been enough, right? By the time it got to me, though, I ended up drawing like a squirrel in a tree, <laughs> you know? And I don't know. I, I took some artistic liberties with the, with the tree. I had that in there. You know, I thought it looked like an animal by the time it got to me. And I thought, well, okay, American flag. It must be an American animal. So we'll go with squirrel, right? Uh, and a lot of people look at the Bible and what the Bible says, and they say, yeah, exactly. That's how they came up with this resurrection, right? Because they had this guru guy that was saying a bunch of stuff. And over the hundreds of years, people created this idea that he was a god and that he somehow resurrected from the dead. Now, now, 1 Corinthians is a big challenge to that idea. Like I said, as we, as we start, 1 Corinthians there, specifically in chapter 15, has embedded in it that very, very early creedal statement. But the letter as a whole, the letter as a whole, 1 Corinthians was a very early one. Very high probability that 1 Corinthians is written somewhere around 40 to 50 A.D. All right? And even as Paul talks about these people who Jesus had appeared to, he says, yes, some of them have fallen asleep, some of them have died, but a lot of them haven't. And there's some even Jewish historians that talk about uh, that, 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 that list of 500 people that Paul is talking about, that that for, for some of the Jewish authorities actually became a hit list. They were systematically trying to off some of these people. Right? And we know from history that a vast majority of the apostles literally laid down their life died rather than recanting what they saw. Again, they didn't hear it from their cousin's friend's next-door neighbor. Peter makes a point. Hey, I was there. I saw it. You want to talk about the story of the transfiguration? Peter says, I heard it. These are eyewitnesses. And the famous really French guy, Blaise Pascal, right? What does he say? He says, I believe the witnesses that have their throats cut. Meaning, I believe people who are willing to die for what they believe. Very rarely will anyone die for a lie. Most of us, when we're tempted to lie, it is for self-improvement. It is for betterment of our lives. It is for the avoidance of pain and suffering and the increase of prosperity. But for the early church, these people that Jesus had appeared to, their testimony of that appearance didn't bring their lives prosperity. It didn't bring them great public popularity. It brought them the opposite. Even to the point of losing their lives. And the early church knew that. And Paul appealed to them. You want to take, you want to take a stand? You want to stand firm in your beliefs? Well, think about this. What has been done? That's been done according to the scriptures. So you know that your God is sovereign. You know he sees the beginning and the end simultaneously. You know it, it's not a knee-jerk reaction, it's a plan. He has a greater purpose. He's in control. And even more, you have all these eyewitnesses. You have doubts? Talk to Peter. You have questions? Pull James aside. I mean, the interesting thing is Paul lists them, you know, he lists them in an order. But the interesting thing is the last two he mentions are James, Jesus' brother, right? If you're Catholic, I'm sorry. Mary had more children, James being one of those. And James was not a follower. 
He was extremely skeptical. Right? We know Paul, very skeptical. Right? Probably not even skeptical is the wrong description. Right? He was literally trying to dismantle the church. But yet, two big opponents turned on their heads. Why? Because Jesus interrupted, interrupted their lives. And it was a reality, a truth. Right? And Paul appeals to them, hey, take your stand on these things. Take, these st take a stand. I encourage you guys, in a world that, again, is losing connection with the truth very rapidly. We're in a world that, that's trying to push everything into gray subjectivity. Be a beacon. Be a light. Stand firm. Don't, don't be scared. Don't be timid. Your faith is not a blind faith. God doesn't want your faith to be a blind, a blind faith. Use your God-given mind to step back and to look at the evidence and see just how true the gospel message is. You know, secondly, Paul urges us, by his example, to pass on. Right? I mean, Paul himself sets a great example here, right? Verse 3 says, what I received, I passed on to you. What Paul received. So Paul puts himself in the same scenario as the church there. Right? Because he came, verse 1, and he had preached to them, and they received it. But Paul's trying to help them understand, how, here's how this works though. Yes, this is an incredible thing. Yes, this is something you should take a stand on for your life, even to the point of death. And yes, that message is tremendous, right? I mean, it's yes, it's bad news initially, right? You're, you're a sinner. But the good news is, is so is everyone else. I always make the point, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, right? He helps everyone to come to grips with his sin. No one is worse than the other in a sense. Everyone before a holy God falls short. Now, that's kind of bad news if you feel like, no, I stand tall. I'm all right. all right. That's bad news of the gospel. But that bad news is, of course, followed very quickly by some tremendous news. But yes, you have an insurmountable debt, but Christ pays that debt for you. When he hung on the cross, he paid it. He paid it in full. That's tremendous news. And we know from Romans 5 that he did what he did as a demonstration of his love for you. He didn't just talk love. He lived love. It wasn't just empty words. It was action. And he laid down his life for you. And that's incredible. That's incredible news. But a lot of times we can take that incredible news and we can kind of absorb it into ourselves. And it is, you know... It's, it's good news, and it does make you feel good about yourself, hopefully. But there's also this reality that you're not the end plan of the gospel. Paul received it, and what did he do? He passed it on. He didn't just keep it to himself. He didn't just take that message and, and feel great about himself. He took that message, and he passed it on to others. And he's urging the church in Corinth to do the same. And I've been reading a book recently by this guy, Jack Miller, called The Heart of a Servant Leader. And he makes the point about the Great Commission that I think is really good. He says that the command to go to the nations with the gospel, right? So the idea that Jesus tells his followers, okay, you've received, now go. 
Which is the same thing Paul is saying here. The church of Corinth. You received it? Okay, now pass it on. This guy, Jack Miller, he makes a point. He says, he says this, this command is not one command among many. It's the master command. It's the central command. It's the one that keeps us as God's people focused on our task, on our mission, on what we are meant to do, our reasons for existence. And if you look at church history, if you look at this period, right? I mean, this is 40, 50 AD that Paul is writing this to a young, growing church in Corinth. Over the next 200 years, Christianity will go from a marginalized minority movement heavily oppressed and persecuted and outlawed by the Roman Empire to the dominant viewpoint in, at the time, the most powerful empire, the Roman Empire. That's remarkable. Again, it wasn't like a favorable environment for growth. It was a hostile environment for growth. There's entire books written on how, how did they grow? <laughs> what was the secret? Was it this? Was it this? Was it this? And, you know, I've read a lot of these books, and none of them really have this clear-cut answer because there's not really some secret silver bullet other than the reality that the people who heard the message understood that it wasn't just for them, that it wasn't just meant to change their life, that they were meant to take it and share it with someone else. That it wasn't something for them to just coddle and feel good about themselves. It was meant to change how they live, but then help them to help other people to change. And I think sometimes, especially when we're, when we're new Christians, when you first come to faith, this is easy. All right? It's good news. You're excited about it. You're finally, uh, you finally have purpose. You finally have meaning. And you tell a lot of people. But what happens a lot of times with time is you get stale as a Christian. Life as a Christian becomes challenging. It is very counterculture. Sometimes challenges your schedule. Challenges your choices. Makes decisions at work difficult. Makes family difficult. And Jesus says that reality, right? He tells his disciples, look, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. It's him first, everyone else, very, very, very far down the line. That's challenging. But a lot of times what happens with time, as Christians, we become inwardly focused. And especially if life has challenges, we turn inward. And then we become more and more discouraged and more and more discontented. And we begin to blame God. And we begin to find fault with Christianity. When in reality, we've lost something very crucial that we had at first. The outward focus. Because most of us became Christians because we followed the world's philosophy of look inward and do whatever you want to do and that'll make you feel good about you. Most of us followed that and realized, oh my goodness, that leaves you quite wanting. The more I look inward, the more discouraged I get actually. But a lot of times as Christians, especially mature Christians, we can, we can fall back into that line. I encourage you, get outwardly focused. If you're, not, if you're not studying the Bible to a non-Christian, find someone. Find someone to share, to pass on what you have been given, what you have received. Being part of something greater than ourselves is incredibly good for ourselves. 
And the reason, is, is it, the reason it is incredibly good is because it puts us in our place. Helps us to realize we're not the center of the universe. You are dearly loved by your creator, but you're not the center of your creator's love. You're part of a wider movement that is meant to bring salvation to the world. Third and lastly here. We take this message, right? We stand on it. We pass it on. But then we also have to embrace that grace that is given to us. You know, Paul says some very interesting things about himself there. You know, verse 7, as he talks about this appearing process, he says, Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Literally in the Greek, it's as, as the aborted child. Right? Paul even hammers home this point, if you don't understand that point. Verse 9, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, as, as he realized in that moment that he had literally set himself in opposition to God in trying to destroy the church, he, he realized just how bad he was. Just how diametrically opposed his life was to God's plan. So Paul had this tremendously low view of himself. And that view was accurate. Now Paul's not alone in that, like we talked about earlier. We all actually in that boat. Paul was keenly aware of that though. And the idea that Jesus would appear to him and give him a new purpose... Right? I mean, he has that big but there in the middle of that sequence. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And here's a key, key sentence. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. But you look at Paul's viewpoint of himself and he sees himself as one abnormally born, as, as, a, as a miscarriage or an abortion, as the least of the apostles. Worthy of nothing, completely opposed to God. And yet God chose him. And God chose to involve him in what he was doing in the world. And Paul knew that that, that change of status, that movement from an outsider to an insider from an outcast to a privileged son, that was all accomplished by grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserved kindness. Not being treated as he should have been treated, which was destroyed. But man, treated with abundant, abundant grace. Now a vast majority of the religious world takes that grace and sadly uses it as a license to do nothing. To remain unchanged. To justify habitual sins. I know because I used to do that. I grew up religious in America, going to church, you know, on a Sunday and Monday to Saturday, living a very different life. But thankfully, every Sunday I could, you know, feel bad about that for a second, apologize to God, and then get right back to what I was doing before. And the lie of, of grace that didn't need to have an effect was fed to me. And even now, 
20 years later, I study the Bible with a lot of people, and you know, even people who have a Christian background, they, they, they get stuck in habitual sins, but grace becomes a crutch rather than an engine that drives them. Grace becomes a, a shield of justification and rationalizing rather than fuel for transformation. And Paul makes this point that, yes, great grace has been extended to him, and he works tirelessly to make sure that that grace is never without effect. And there's some scary warnings in 1 Corinthians 15. How many warns them in the beginning there uh, about a, a belief, verse 2, that is in vain? Faith that is useless, which sounds a lot like James 2. Well, James makes the point that faith without deeds is dead. It's of no value. It's incomplete. And one of the keys that you know, we've got to get from this idea is this tremendously good news. If you were dead in your sins and that debt has been paid on the cross and, and Jesus has resurrected as proof of who he is and who is you know, the authority that he has and that that resurrection is actually first fruits for all of mankind. So the great foe that we all face, which is death, has been conquered. And we can have confidence of that reality because of the event of the resurrection. And that death no longer has this sting that it has for all of mankind, but that we can face it with confidence. We can face it even with joy. We can even get to a point where Paul does in his letter to the church in, the, in, the, uh, in Philippi that, man, he actually wishes he would die and go and be with God. Because he knew that that grace had transformed his standing before the Holy God. But you think about that thought. You think about if you really were living your life with the belief that maybe you have days, maybe hours before you die and you stand before your crate, how would that change how you live? One of my favorite writers is this guy, George Whitfield. Uh, he was a preacher during the, the, the Great Awakening in the UK, in, in America, uh, you know, in the 18th century. And, and he talks about this idea. It, it makes these resolutions to live every day as if he only has days. Because he knew that there was something about that belief, something about that idea that death is imminent and that there is life beyond that that enable him to then make the most of what he has. And most of us, if we really thought that, if you really thought you have a week left, you would make changes. If you knew it was a week before you were going to stand before God and every selfish deed and attitude of your heart was going to be laid bare, there'd probably be a fair bit of repentance. All right? You got to hope, at least. All right? You know, one of the things that helped Corral turn his life around was falling asleep at the wheel and running his car into a tree, right? And when he realized, oh my gosh, life is fragile. The next week, Corral's like, I need to get baptized. We're like, yeah, we've been telling you that, man. <laughs> but there's something about that reality that brings everything into clarity. And grace is meant to do that as well, guys. Because we know that that, that moment when it does come, we will only survive by grace. But that grace should not make you lazy. It should make you like Paul. It should have tremendous effect 
on your life. It should change you. It'll set you free from the selfish patterns. But it'll set you free with a purpose. To not live for yourself, but to live for God. To not ponder just what's best for me, but to ponder what's best for my neighbor. To not approach the world from a prideful standpoint of me first, others second. But to invert that and take the path of a servant. And I ask you, what kind of effect is God's grace having in your life? Far too many of us know a lot about God's grace. Talk a lot about God's grace. Pray to God, thanking Him for His grace. But too little of that is translated over into our actions. We can't be a people like that. That's not the example that was put before us. That's not how we are meant to live. You know, and as you leave here today on, on, on Easter Sunday, I encourage you to think about these things. Think about the, the, the grace and the power of the resurrection that it brings. As we close out, let's read here the end of chapter 15 from the message translation, which is, you know, it's borderline commentary, but it's quite good at times, right? Uh, and Eugene Peterson here, as he writes in the message, he says, it's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection. That undergirds what I do and say the way I live. If there's no resurrection, we eat, we drink, the next day we die. That's all there is to it. But don't fool yourselves. Don't let yourselves be poisoned by this anti-resurrection loose talk. Bad company ruins good manners. Think straight. Awaken to the holiness of life. No more playing fast and loose with resurrection facts. Ignorance of God is a luxury you can't afford in times like these. Aren't you embarrassed that you've let this kind of thing go on as long as you have? You know, and Eugene, Madison does, Eugene Peterson does capture this concept pretty good. Right? And it is. Everything in our lives needs to be about the resurrection. But it needs to have tremendous, tremendous effect. I encourage you to think about these things. Resurrection is a historical event that happened. There's incredible evidence that backs it up. Stand firm on it. Don't waver full of the, the subjectivity and relativism of our time, but stand firm on it. Be prepared to give reasons why you have hope to those who oppose you. Do it with gentleness and humility, but be prepared. And understand that what you've been given in this tremendous message is not purely for you. Yes, it is for you. Yes, it needs to change you. Man, you're not the end of the plan. You're a link in the chain. Do your part. Take what you've been given and bring it to someone else. And as you do that, embrace that grace that continues to change you and mold you from the inside out. Amen? Let's have a prayer that we'll stand together uh, and sing one final song after Ben drops his water off, after we take the, the bread and the wine. Amen? So let's pray now for the bread and the wine, and then we'll... T uh, Sing some songs together. Let's pray. Father, we do, uh, we do thank you. We, we thank you, you know, that thousands of years ago you conquered death. And Father, we, we acknowledge that, that you, you did what you did on the cross to pay our debt. And Father, as we take the bread and the wine, God, we, we pray that we can obviously examine ourselves, God, with a glimpse of humility and to understand how far... How far we fall short of you and your standards and your will, Father. 
to not just mindlessly you know, eat the cracker and drink the cup, but to think about the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, God. But Father, help us to, to not you know, end up stuck in introspection. To understand that, that obviously things didn't end on the Friday, that the Sunday did come, that the tomb was empty, that the entire you know, direction of mankind was shifted. And that in reality, hope has flooded the world as a result, God. And Father, we, we know that, that we are often a people who do things we don't want to do. and make choices that we know we shouldn't even make, God. But we pray that as we reflect on that sacrifice, God, that, that your grace can flood our hearts. And Father, as we consider the resurrection and the, and the new birth that that does usher in, God, that we too can pass from death to life. God, that our hearts can be filled with hope. Father, we pray you help us, God. Help us to, 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 to leave here today, God, empowered to live differently. To take this tremendous message of hope to the world around us, God. To take this message of truth to a world that so desperately needs something firm to stand on, God. Again, we thank you for all the ways you do bless us and the grace you do shower on us. In Christ's name we pray.